I'm Molly Blackall, and in the iPodcast today, our housing correspondent, Vicky Spratt, will be taking us into some of the UK's worst homes and finding out exactly what Housing Secretary Michael Gove is planning to do about it. Then we'll be speaking to our correspondents in Doha about Qatar's only British pub. But first, we join Vicky at a 1960s block in central London to meet Andy, a woman pushed to the brink by her mouldy home. When I visit Andy Williams in her Pimlico flat on a cold November morning, damp doesn't quite cover it. Andy, so we're in, we're in your bedroom. Inside, the air is hot and humid. Condensation is visible on the windows, which Andy keeps open in a vain attempt to dry the flat out. In every room, there is mould on the walls and surfaces. Andy shows me into her autistic son's bedroom, where the ceiling has collapsed. There's a huge hole where the light fitting once was. The room is dark and the smell of mould is overwhelming. I stifle a cough. The problem started just months after we moved in. Uh, Moved in around um, March, April and from sort of around November we had noticed paint peeling off the walls and the mould. It's a black mold and it spreads. It's hard to clean, try cleaning it because what we get told when we report it is open the windows. It's because you're not opening the windows enough. That's what we get told. It's in literally every room, right around the same areas near the windows, um, the corner by my bed, my kids' beds, on the ceiling. That's where it is. No matter what we buy, we bought stuff from the DIY store to clean it with. It always keeps coming back in a very short space of time. The mother of four looks worn out. She's been fighting with her housing association and the local authority that runs the building since 2011. She's even launched a legal challenge, but the mould and leaks persist. It's having a devastating impact on her and her family. Um... It impacts my children going to school. It impacts their physical health. My son's, my younger son, um, at his secondary school, they've asked me to have him tested for asthma. Um, My older son, but had difficulties as well. He has a deviated septum, so it's already hard for him to breathe. My oldest daughter, she has asthma. And for me as well, it's the same with an inhaler. We tend to cough and cough and cough a lot. It's just this bit of coughing every time. It was very scary with COVID because the first time you cough, you think it's every time we get tested, it's it's not that. So the only thing the doctor can put it down to is definitely the impact of the mould growing and the flat and the damp walls. Andy is not alone. Across the country, people are living in homes so bad they could harm their health. According to the latest English housing survey, around 2.2 million households have what they call a Category 1 hazard, such as black mould. The risks of living in these homes have long been known. It's been a constant feature of my reporting in the seven years I've been covering housing. But it's taken the tragic death of the two-year-old boy Awabashak in Rochdale for the issue to be given the national attention it truly deserves. 
Less than half a mile away from Andy's home is the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities. It's here where I meet the man in charge of addressing this crisis, Michael Gove. Michael Gove, you're Secretary of State for Housing, head of the department responsible for housing in this country. We have had a huge housing crisis for years, and now a child, a two-year-old, has died. And the coroner's report said it was a direct result of prolonged exposure to mould in his social home. Your party has been in government for 12 years. How are you going to stop more people dying? Well, we all recognise that there is much more that we need to do in order to give tenants a fair deal, um, in both the social housing sector and the private rented sector. And Awab Ishak's death is a very, very powerful reminder of how much more there is to be done. So we're introducing legislation which will ensure that tenants' voices are heard, uh, that the regulator has more powers to deal with landlords that are not looking after properties and not looking after tenants. Uh, you're right, this legislation should have been introduced earlier. It was meant to be introduced um, quickly after the Grenfell disaster. But I hope that people will recognise that the laws that we're bringing forward now will make a difference. Millions of homes in both the social and private rented sector do not meet the decent home standard. Earlier this week, I was with a woman who is a mother of four. One of her children is disabled and autistic. In his bedroom, there is a gaping hole in the ceiling because of a leak. There is no light. She cannot take much more. She has a lawyer who is pursuing her housing association and nothing is changing. We have a huge problem with private renters too, all living under the same conditions. I see them all the time again. They fear complaining because of Section 21, which means they can be evicted at any time. What are you going to do about that? Well, I completely sympathise with people who are in a position like that. So firstly, you're absolutely right. There are far too many homes that don't meet decent standards. There are even more homes in the private rented sector than in the social rented sector that are simply not fit for, for habitation at the moment. And Abab's death reminds us that um, the circumstances in which far too many people find themselves are a direct danger to their health and well-being. Uh, Section 21 is a tool that some landlords uh, use or threaten to use if people are going to make complaints, which would mean that they would be evicted without good reason. So we're going to get rid of Section 21. We, we recognise that there are good landlords who will sometimes need to deal with tenants who are antisocial or who deliberately uh, avoid paying their rent. But Section 21 is a, uh, an unfair and arbitrary way for landlords to deal with tenants with whom they're in dispute. And as you say, it has a chilling effect when people need to complain about the conditions in which they and their families are living. But when will we get rid of Section 21? Because renters have been waiting since 2019. We're bringing forward a specific renters reform bill which will get rid of Section 21 and lead to uh, better conditions in the private rented sector. It will also enable uh, the overwhelming majority of landlords who are good people providing a valuable service to, to deal effectively with that tiny minority of tenants who are disruptive. So it's a, it's a balanced package, but I think it, it redresses the balance in the right way. Um, and we'll be bringing that forward uh, in this parliament. Uh, it will be, uh, I hope, introduced in the next calendar year, so in 2023. As we've discussed, Awabashak is not the only child living in these conditions, which are a threat to their health 
and can even be fatal. The homelessness charity Shelter estimate there are over a million people currently on waiting lists for social housing. They say we need to build around 90,000 social homes a year. Last year, we only built 6,000. We urgently need to build new social housing and we need planning reform to get other homes built too. You've been a champion of that during both of your stints in this job. How are you going to get the homes built? Well, you're absolutely right that we do need more homes for social rent. And uh, one of the things I want to do is to work with uh, registered social landlords and with councils in order to make sure that's the case. We also need to work with developers in order to ensure that when new sites come forward, that there are a proportion of the new homes um, which are affordable or homes for social rent as well. And of course, ultimately, it saves the taxpayer money because if you've got people in socially rented homes, then uh, if they have to have recourse to, to, to benefits, then the rent is lower than it would be in the private sector. And that means that the taxpayer and the tenant get a better deal. When it comes to planning overall, um, our, our current planning system is flawed and it does need reform. And I want to work with MPs from all parties in order to make sure that we get more homes. Uh, they need to be the right homes in the right places. I've said that we need to get um, beautiful homes. Everyone has a right to a high quality place to live and that we also need to invest in infrastructure as well. And that means working with developers and with local government to get more sites up and running for more development. Well, one of the things I hear from people who work in local authorities is that they have a huge problem because when tenants are living in conditions like those which killed Awabashak or like the family I mentioned who I met with earlier this week, they cannot move them anywhere else because they have a housing shortage. Building new social homes is urgent. It needs to happen now, not in the next calendar year, not further down the line. How are you going to make it happen? Well, I think the, the, the first thing to say is that the focus on the need for more social homes has been sharpened by your work, by the iPapers' work, by the work of uh, Dan Hewitt and ITV, um, and the work of other uh, campaigners like Kweji Twenneboa. Um, and now I think that there is a, a consensus, a recognition on the part of local government and others that we do need to build more social homes. In order to do so, we in government have a role to play through the Affordable Homes Programme. We can give money to uh, local authorities and to housing associations, and we can work with Homes England in order to get uh, that money out of the door. Um, and I, I, I understand the frustration that many people have felt um, that it has been difficult to provide those homes. It's also made more difficult because we're in a, a cost of living situation where uh, the cost of uh, materials is, uh, is, has increased and the labour market is tight. Um, but while these are obstacles that we need to overcome, they shouldn't be barriers to trying to do everything we can to increase those numbers. And that's what the department is focused on. And are you talking to other departments who control the purse strings, namely the Treasury? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the Chancellor and the Chief Secretary both recognise that for the, the good of the economy and also for the welfare of uh, the most vulnerable, that we do need to make sure that we do have have uh, more homes built and more social and affordable homes built um, along the way. Um, and of course, you know, resources are tight, but in the most recent um, uh, fiscal event in the, in the autumn statement uh, last week, the Chancellor did make money available for local government. Local government was uh, protected alongside health and education as an important area. And that's a recognition on, on the Treasury's part about the vital role that councils have to play being our partners in, among other things, bringing forward more homes for development. When a social landlord does not take their tenants' complaints about 
poor conditions seriously, as we saw in the case of Rochdale Borough-wide housing and Awaba Shack's family. What, what is your plan? What sanctions are you going to impose? What are you going to do to make them take notice? Uh, my concern with um, uh, Rochdale Borough-wide housing is uh, not only did they not respond appropriately to the complaints that Awab Ishak's father made, that when they, they did have contact with the family, their attitudes were, were rooted in prejudice and ignorance, um, and then they hid behind legal process to avoid dealing with them. Um, and then when they were confronted with the consequences of their, of their failure, they refused properly to acknowledge that. That's just not good enough. So one of the things that I'm saying to them and to other uh, housing associations that are not doing a good job is the government money that we have available that helps to support your work. We are not going to provide you with the money that you expected if you fail to uphold decent standards. Your first responsibility is to your tenants to make sure that they're in decent conditions. So there will be financial, direct financial sanctions until and unless you up your game. Tough talk. Well, not only tough talk, but I hope tough sanctions that will bite in order to get them to appreciate the scale and the nature of their responsibilities. Um, just um, uh, in a few days' time, it was going to be the case that the social housing sector was going to have an award ceremony. Um, and it was going to be the case that people would uh, applaud each other, pat themselves on the back. Uh, that award ceremony has been cancelled. The reason it's been cancelled is that uh, housing association chiefs, uh, registered social landlords, recognise that now is not a time for self-congratulation. It's a time for self-reflection. Um, and, of course, government has a, a role to play. And my, uh, my role is clear which is to provide resources to those people who are doing a good job in order to have more social homes built, but for those landlords that are doing a bad job to say that government support is going to be withdrawn unless and until you up your game. And what about private renters? They are a huge group, 4.4 million households, and many of them are also living in poor conditions. What do you say to this group of people? Would you consider further regulation of conditions in the private rented sector beyond what's in the renters' reform bill? And will you properly resource it? Well, you're absolutely right. And again, I think it's important, and, and, and we both know, that the overwhelming majority of landlords do a good job and want to do a good job. But there are far too many people in the private rented sector that are in homes which are, are not decent. It's sometimes the case that the, uh, it's difficult to work out who the actual owner is, who the landlord is, because you've got some institutions which hide behind these opaque structures, which are operated from abroad, which keep properties in very poor conditions. So one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that we have a proper means of identifying who actually owns these properties, but we do need more effective enforcement and we're looking at how the decent home standard can apply uh, to the, uh, the private rented sector. And we're also thinking about other ways in which we can help landlords to do the right thing. A renter's reform bill is coming and what I want to do is to make sure uh, that uh, we have all of the tools necessary in order to ensure that people have a safe, warm, decent place to live. Like me, you will have read the coroner's report into Awabashak's death. It was chilling. What was the main thing you came away feeling? Um, just an immense sense of sorrow and anger. Uh, sorrow that Awab's family had tried and tried to ask the people whose responsibility it was to look after them to, to resolve a basic problem. Um, and then, you know, the, the horror of um, the wee boy... Um, going to hospital, coming back, then going to hospital again in circumstances which led to his death just 
days after his second birthday. It's, it's, it's a terrible story. And what makes you angry is that uh, the people who, who should have responded, um, you know, hid behind process and uh, legality. Um, I think, in fairness, people across the sector uh, have been reflecting on Awab's death. And I think there is a, a change, a commitment to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. But it does need relentless focus in order to make sure that people who are living with damp and mold in their homes and people who are living with other uh, health-threatening conditions at last get the justice they deserve. Thanks, Vicky. I think we can all agree that your coverage of this issue that affects so many people is truly vital. This is something we pride ourselves on at I, reporting without fear or favour. An iDigital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted, non-partisan news. And for this week only, you can grab yourself a subscription at our lowest price ever. Head over to inews.co.uk forward slash subscription to get a huge 50% off our digital subscriptions and support our journalism at the same time. That's £29.99 for 12 months. That's less than 10p a day for award-winning news, opinion and analysis. But this offer runs out at midnight tonight, so do hurry. I, for Open Minds, subscribe today. I'm joined now by our housing correspondent, Vicky Spratt, who's joined us here in the studio, and Richard Vaughan, who has dialed in from Westminster. So, Vicky, starting with you, you've uh, written about housing now for the best part of a decade. How did we get into this mess? Oh, the million dollar question. Um, Really, it goes back to the 1980s and 1990s when Thatcher's government had this kind of big vision for overhauling housing. Policies like right to buy, which have resulted in a mass social council housing sell-off. We've sold off homes, we've not replaced them. And then there was the deregulation in 1988 of the private rented sector that rebalanced the private rental market in favour of landlords, taking away things like rent control, introducing things like no-fault evictions, which mean that renters can be evicted at any time without ever having to have done anything wrong. Then you have the kind of buy-to-let mortgage boom in the 90s that expands buy-to-let at a time, remember, when our social housing stock is diminishing because of right to buy. House prices then, bar a couple of dips through the last 30 years, went on this upwards trajectory, far outpacing wage growth. Now we have historically high house prices, harder to get on the housing ladder, less social housing, lots of people living in privately rented homes owned by private landlords who can be evicted if they complain about things like poor conditions. There's also a reform of the way that social housing is funded. So you have the creation of housing associations also in the 80s, which are these sort of arm's length organisations instead of local authorities building and managing social housing or council housing. It's housing associations. All of that has led us to where we are now, which during the time I've been reporting on it has been 
sort of a race to the bottom in terms of housing standards and housing affordability. And I think that's really hit headlines in recent weeks because of the coroner's report into Awaba Shak's death. But he, sadly, is one of many, many children living in substandard housing in this country. So what's the kind of political move forward here? Sunak and Gover proposing this levelling up and regeneration bill. What will that mean for housing, in particular kind of unsafe living? Well, it really depends what ends up in that piece of legislation. I think what's probably more pressing is the social housing regulation bill, uh, which was supposed to come in after Grenfell. It's only just going through Parliament and it was stuck in the long grass for ages. When Michael Gove was made housing secretary, he really sort of put rockets underneath that and has made it get over the line. We're still waiting on an equivalent piece of legislation for private renters, which will be known as the Renters Reform Bill, which will give, in the way that the Social Housing Regulation Bill will give social renters new consumer rights, the Renters Reform Bill will give private renters new rights, although I prefer to say restore some of the rights they had before Thatcher took them away. Um, but, But that's stuck in the long grass too. So I think those two bits of legislation are really, really key in terms of moving forward with housing. In terms of levelling up, it's important to think about levelling up and planning reform. And actually what we need and what all of the experts agree that we need in this country is more social housing. And at the moment, there is no commitment to invest more money in building new social homes. So how much impact will these reforms have? You know, those social renters and also private renters, if they were able to get over the line, which again, we have no sort of sense of or time frame on what day to day would that do for renters yeah i think that's a really good question because there is so much legislation here um lots of it goes back decades it all overlaps doesn't make sense people don't even know what rights they do have and really you just need to sort it out so that renters are able to know that where they live is safe and affordable to my mind it's very simple somehow we're making that intensely complicated <laughs> the social housing regulation bill is is that's the one that's closest to getting over the line and that will um, give the social housing regulator new powers to investigate poor conditions and and help tenants make complaints against their landlords and and get the conditions they deserve or get compensation um, I think that's really really important because for years people living in social housing have been treated really poorly by not all but some very bad social landlords. I've seen some of the correspondence that people get from their housing associations and you wouldn't speak to anyone that way. So I think these rights are really, really vital. In terms of renters reform, Michael Gove told me that should be happening next year. Next year. Should be. But it was was supposed to happen years ago. It was supposed to happen before he got sacked by Boris Johnson. So let's see. That is really key. The end of Section 21 no-fault evictions will give renters security and peace of mind. It will help them to feel like their home is their own, to stop them fearing, complaining in case they just get turfed out. There's also some really good stuff in there, which is not rent regulation. We don't like that as a Conservative government. But about limiting in-tenancy rent increases. Let's hope that makes it into the final draft because right now across the country, rents are rising above 
inflation. And I'm hearing from people week in, week out who are being hit with 30, 40, 70 percent rent increases that they simply cannot afford to pay. So sorting out affordability and making sure that poor conditions are dealt with in the PRS, private rented sector, is really, really, really key. We touched on Mr Gove there. I would like to ask you, Richard, a little bit about him. So you've been reporting on housing from within Westminster and Mr Gove has obviously made his comeback um, as housing secretary. How are MPs sort of responding to his return? Is he considered to be doing a good job? Well, it's one of many comebacks for Michael Gove. He's obviously staged several comebacks uh, throughout his career. Um, Listen, I mean, Michael Gove is regarded by MPs as probably one of the best thinkers there are in in, in government, um, certainly within the Tory party. He's a very considered, very intelligent man. Um, the problem is, I mean, beyond maybe the NHS trying to sort housing um, as a conservative housing secretary is one of the difficult, most difficult jobs in, in politics. Um, people like him. He is a very charming, very genial chap, but they don't like, well, certain sections of the Tory party, very, very vocal sections of the Tory party, don't like housing. They don't like planning. They they pretend that they do, but they are, in essence, uh, quite nimby-ish. Um, so just he explain is what nimby to, means, Richard. Sorry, just to explain what nimby means for listeners who might not understand that concept. <laughs> Some of them might be nimbies themselves. Um, <laughs> so not in my backyard is what that acronym stands for. Um and it's essentially people who like the idea of, of of building more houses. They just don't like the idea of houses being built where they live. Uh, it's a very, very prevalent, uh, very um, powerful um, uh, sentiment that is held by voters. And it's one that is, is basically tearing and has always teared uh, the Tory party uh, asunder. Um, and it's it's difficult to see. We, we've reached another crunch point now, which I'm sure we'll, we'll go on to talk about. It's difficult to see how they try and square this circle as a government because, uh, I mean, Vicky's touched on it an awful lot. So there's lots of different facets to this, but essentially it all comes down to housing supply, both social housing and uh, and private housing. And if you do not build houses then you are going to have all the other impacts that, that Vicky's been talking about and the other things that we've been reading about uh, for the last 10, 15, 20 years. I think there's something interesting going on with the Conservative Party, Richard. And mm-hmm. I think this could end up tearing them apart because something that Gove, to my mind and in my experience, has a real grasp of is the fact that the Tory party are going to have a huge electoral problem in years to come if they do not sort out housing. Because not only is there now this social housing crisis that has been brought into sharp focus by campaigners like Kwejo Twenaboa, who was living in really dire social housing in South London, and then, of course, the coroner's report into Awaba Shak's death, but also the crisis in the private rented sector where people on middle incomes are now stuck renting and can't afford to buy homes. And as the self-appointed party of home ownership, if you don't have any homeowners, 
Uh, I really wonder about the survival of, of that kind of political philosophy. And I think that's something Gove's alluded to in quite a few speeches. And increasingly, I mean, last week when I was with Mr. Gove, when we were talking a lot about this two-year-old's death, planning reforms were withdrawn from the Commons because they feared a defeat from the Conservative back bench. This party is not making sense in terms of where the public mood is on housing. And if you look at the polling post-pandemic, you'll see that public support for the benefit system for social housing is the highest it's been in recent years because perhaps there's been this mood shift, this realisation that state support is so vital. So let's talk more about that. We've talked about how this could potentially be a real sort of issue for the Tories at the next election. But I wonder also about the impact on this legislation itself. If the party is this divided, you know, and you've got the sort of march of the NIMBYs going on, how likely is it that Mr. Gove is going to be able to pass these kind of reforms? Well, he he's he's speaking to, to, to the rebels now. Um, they've promised to bring back this bill for the second day of the report stage before Christmas. Um, it's going to be really interesting to try and figure out what kind of compromises might be met. What could happen is they ram through the uh, the changes and face down the, the rebels because they would be able to pass this uh, uh, this bill or certainly this part of the bill with the backing of Labour and the Lib Dems, or maybe not the Lib Dems, but certainly with Labour. So they'd be able to maybe squeak it through, but it doesn't. it's not a great look, Rishi Sunak, having to rely on Labour votes to, to pass his own legislation. So, and, and then you, you then store up additional problems uh, further down the line because you've just upset a very large uh, wing of your party. So it's all going to come down to the, to, the, to the charm of Michael Gove and how he's going to be able to try and win around these uh, these these rebels who do not like the idea of top-down housing targets. Uh, and as I say, it's it's going to be very, very difficult for them to square that circle. And what do you think, Vicky? How optimistic are you feeling about it? I've noticed Michael Gove's tone on this change. Um, when I saw him last week, he was using words like sympathetic to the concerns of other MPs and saying he was speaking with them. And I think we've we've moved on from where we were during his last stint as housing secretary, where I noticed that he was speaking in a slightly more forthright way. And the Conservative Party is is in crisis. I mean, we just saw it completely melt down and take the country with it. <laughs> so I think they're trying very hard to avoid any further schisms like that. I also saw Lisa Nandy last week and she made the joke that uh, if Rishi and Michael need Labour's votes on planning reform, they'd be more than happy to lend them. But I think as Richard notes, that would be an absolutely terrible look for the party at a time when it really has has been through the mill and caused huge national instability as a result. So I think they'll want to avoid that. But all that being said, the direction of travel for the housing crisis is really from bad to worse right now. And as the cost of living continues to intensify, this is only going to get worse for millions of people. And we, even if we built social housing at scale tomorrow, we're not going to fix this crisis. And I think Michael Gove knows that more than anyone. He is an intellectual. He has done the reading. He's spoken to everybody worth speaking to in the housing sector. And it must be very frustrating for him, I would imagine, to have an understanding of how to fix this. It's really interesting because this is this is the government being held to account uh, or, or, or held uh, to task by 
by backbench Tory MPs. But if you speak to to, to lots of focus groups um, or people who run focus groups, rather, as I do, people like Public First, uh, um, CPS, these kind of think tanks, voters in the in the south and the southeast, they do actually want houses to be built because it's it's super expensive to, to try and buy a house at the moment. And also you're seeing families being kind of split apart because it's too expensive for, for the kids or the grandkids or, or of people who live in, again, the home counties or something like that. But there is this very, very, very vocal um, uh, section of society who are able to get into the inboxes of MPs and put a load of pressure on to, to try and prevent houses being built um, at the pace that, that the, we, the country needs to be built at. Um, so it's a, it's a really fascinating thing because if you kind of scrape away and, and look past the MPs waving their fists in the, in the Commons chamber, um, people actually do want, they're not all NIMBYs, they do, they do want these houses to be built. Yeah, and, and I think the polling more broadly does does represent that. Mm. I want to talk here sadly about worst case scenario, which is if these reforms do get blocked, you know, we, we don't see them come to fruition, what happens? What can be done? What state of play will we be in in the British housing market? Well, look, I, I would say one thing about, about the, the levelling up bill, which is, as I mentioned earlier, there is no more money for social housing. We've got the Affordable Homes Programme, which is a finite amount of money over five or six years, and that is not being increased. So if these reforms don't go through, it will affect building of homes and it will affect where they go. But I think the real key here is finding a way to deliver truly affordable housing at scale urgently. And that right now is not even on the table. Michael Gove is absolutely talking about it. But there is no suggestion that that money is coming from anywhere or that that's going to happen. So I think that is actually the most urgent thing. Um, and, And renters reform is so unbelievably urgent. Yes, we need to build homes. Yes, we need to figure out the planning system, make it easier to do that. But I think sorting out conditions in the private rented sector, stopping people being evicted and building truly affordable housing, not more housing that people can't afford to buy, that we're going to have to come up with ingenious, inventive credit products like Help to Buy to make sure that they can actually sell these homes. All of that sort it out further down the line. But where is the money to build truly affordable homes? Next, we're headed back to Qatar, where I's northern football correspondent Mark Douglas has found a slice of home in the form of the Red Lion Pub, where plentiful beer, trophy-shaped glasses and even a plate of fish and chips can be found. Hi, Mark. How's the tournament been for you so far? Uh, It's been a a really surreal experience because there was so much background noise when we came out here. And then when you actually get to Doha... Things are so different that they're putting on an, a, a really incredible tournament in, in a lot of ways. It's really well organised. Um, you feel safe out here. Lots of people milling around in the metro uh, areas, and it's you know great atmosphere in, in those places. And the stadiums are absolutely stunning, like nothing I've ever seen before. But there's obviously all these kind of background issues as well. So it, it's it's a really weird experience to be out there. But I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm really enjoying it at the moment. So I, I wanted to ask you about the stadiums, actually, that you mentioned there. England tickets are normally like gold dust. Are the stadiums as packed this tournament as they usually are? 
Yeah, it's been a really strange one because if you try to buy a ticket uh, on the foreign um, supporters portal, you can't find one. They're, they're, they're really difficult to find. Obviously, you could find one for the first couple of games, but now they're all sold out. But then when you go into the stadiums, there's plenty of empty seats. And I think connecting those dots has been part of the job of us guys out here is, you know, we've, we've been told that quite a lot of them have been sold to um, local Qatari um, supporters and some of them just haven't turned up. Uh, and there's other, obviously other other reasons as well why uh, maybe some of these seats are, seats are empty. Could be Some of them could be to sponsors, some of them could be to people who've bought them but haven't been able to get out here for various reasons with the with visas and things like that. But it has been a, an odd one because every stadium's capacity has been... Um, announced as being full you know it's, it's all every single game is sold out apparently FIFA have told us that 94% of the seats have been filled but with our own eyes we're sort of seeing other other things but they, the stadiums do seem to be gradually filling up whether that's that the local authorities have made sure that they've distributed these tickets so that they're not showing big empty spaces or whether it's because genuinely the games later in the tournament have sold out uh, we're not sure but it's been a kind of World Cup of of uh, strange events like that, but uh, it does. They, the stadiums do seem to be filling up now, uh, and I think tonight's game, England game, is going to be full. And I think most of the games from now on are apparently all sold out. So, Mark, you found a home from home in Doha, haven't you? Tell us about the Red Lion Pub and why it is so popular. Well, yeah. So I called it in my piece the uh, worst kept secret at the World Cup, and. Uh, when I was on the uh, when I was on the plane coming from Manchester, there was quite a lot of England and Wales fans around me, and they all kept mentioning this place, the Red Lion. And I thought I've got to go and see this place. Is, is it really what what everybody says it is? And sure enough, it is an exact replica of a British park really? in the middle of the desert. It's so strange. <laughs> it's really really weird. Everything right down to the sort of fish and chips on the menu. It's so so weird because obviously you can't just buy a drink in the supermarket. But then you've got this pub that's kind of tucked away at the mezzanine level of a hotel. And it is so close to it, uh, the kind of pub that you'd find in Spain or a place like that. And it's it's really, really weird. And it even extends to the fact that when you go into the pub, the atmosphere is very similar to a British pub. There was a lot of English people pretty drunk, um, giving, uh, giving the Wales fans a lot of stick, who then gave it back to the England fans when they drew with the US and it, and it felt, I mean, you could have been anywhere, really, in, in the world where there's a British pub. It, the fact that you're in a, a country where there's strict restrictions on alcohol, it just felt so strange. Um, but it was, yeah, it was an experience, I'd say. I, w- I won't necessarily be going back, but I think it's definitely one that you've got to do if you're, uh, if you're here and you're, and you're desperate for a pint. <laughs> so who goes to the Red Lion? Is it just England fans or England and Wales fans inside? No, that was what was so surprising. I, I mean, I went on the day that England played the US and um, it was quite funny because the pub manager came out and there was a couple of guys in Wales shirts next to me, who were really nice guys. And he said, look, I, I don't think this place is for you until all these England fans clear out. And I kind of looked at him and, and we were said, it, it, he clearly doesn't understand what it's like um, to, go, to go to the pub before the match because, you know, there'd be no trouble in there, but, the, but there was plenty of sort of drunken, uh, banter, if you, will, if you will, against the against the Wales fans. But as soon as the game kicked off and the England fans went to the went to the match, it was fans from all over the place. There was fans from Iran. Um, there were fans from Senegal. A lot of Americans in there. A lot of Welsh fans, uh, Mexicans, um, people supporting Brazil, and a lot of locals as well. So I think that's what made it. I think if it had just been England fans, 
it would have been sort of a slightly strange atmosphere, I think. But the fact that there was a lot of people in there and they were all sort of supporting different teams kind of made it a little bit of a, a better experience than I thought it was going to be. And, uh, you know, they had a live band there and, you know, play, playing all the classics and it was uh, <laughs> there was flogging T-shirts and glasses <laughs> that uh, shaped like the World Cup. It was a it was a proper pub experience. So what's the atmosphere in the stands like then? It depends who you, it depends who you watch. I've been to see Portugal and the, the atmosphere was absolutely fantastic. But I think a lot of the local supporters were there to see Cristiano Ronaldo because the reaction that he got when he scored and even when he was on the big screen was absolutely incredible. The most similar to a, an atmosphere at home that I've heard have been when the teams from you know nearby are played. So when Saudi Arabia played, an absolutely incredible part of an atmosphere. Morocco and Tunisia have got absolutely huge followings out here. And I think probably partly because there's large populations out here who, who are uh, Moroccan or Tunisian as well. So a lot of them have been able to pick up tickets. So those games have been absolutely fantastic. Some of the other games, it's been a little bit more flat. I, I was at the first England game against Iran, and um, it wasn't it wasn't a great atmosphere. It was very, it was it was a strange kind of almost like a, a friendly atmosphere there, which was which I found really odd because Iran have got a big following out here as well. But it really depends, I think, which team you're watching play, uh, and when it's when it's a team that's fairly local to here or one of the bigger teams, it's been it's been a really good atmosphere. For ongoing coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash subscribe and grab yourself a special 50% off deal. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.